Welcome to another Portfolio Profile episode of the Tech Meme Ride Home. This is another um, investment that the Ride Home Fund has made. Uh, as you know, I love all of my children equally, but this uh, I'm so excited to be involved uh, with this company. Um, today, we're going to talk to Cadre. Uh, we're talking to Cadre's founder, Ryan Williams. Uh, Ryan, give us the, the two minutes of what Cadre does, what the mission is, and then... Um, We'll we'll get into it. Great. Well, thank you for having me, and we're very excited to uh, to, to to call you an investor and partner as well. Um, Cadre is a digital stock market for real estate investing. Uh, what that means, uh, in even more layman's terms, is uh, we uh, are a platform where we make it as easy to invest in uh, real estate properties as it is to um, invest in a product on, say, Amazon. Um, and we also make it as easy uh, to sell, um, that is to get liquidity, um, you know, to the extent that there's a match on the other end as it is to sell a product on one of these consumer um, uh, platforms. And the reason I started the business uh, is because I saw firsthand how um, uh, ownership could literally change the trajectory of, um, you know, your future and your, your, uh, your, your children's future um, and how a lack of ownership could have the exact um, uh, same impact, but in a really negative way. Um, and I wanted to change that. I wanted to democratize access to multi-generational wealth creation and bring uh, premier yield-oriented real estate to the masses. Uh, and that clearly started, um, you know, from a pretty personal point, um, growing up, never owning any real estate, no one in my family owning real estate, uh, and, uh, and pretty quickly seeing the difference in financial stability that ownership provided. Right, you're uh, you're from Louisiana, right? Baton Rouge, uh, yes. LSU, so I'm 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 UF, so uh, at, at least we're both okay. SEC. I think we That's said right. we'll, we won't hold it against you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but th- th- this is a you know sometimes we don't get right into this, but your entrepreneurial story, like I, you're you started as an entrepreneur like really really young, like weren't you at like age thirteen doing? <laughs> startups I, I don't know if you would call it that but like um tell me tell me about like you know the the sort of entrepreneurial bug and, and when it hit you sure i i think um i believe that uh it's probably always been something that uh has sort of uh been present under the surface um because to me being an entrepreneur is, is really about asking questions um and then uh after you ask those questions, um, picking a solution and pursuing that solution, uh, I happened to ask some questions that had to deal with personal pain points for me growing up um, and uh, conceived of a solution to one of those pain points is the first venture I ever started, as you alluded to when I was 13. Um, and that pain point was um, growing up, I couldn't afford Nike or Adidas or Jordan headbands and wristbands. I played sports. Um, and headbands and wristbands used to be a big thing, believe it or not, to all the, the, uh, the, the Gen Z folks out there. And, um, uh, and so, you know, I asked, you know, what would it take for me to be able to, to buy uh, headbands and wristbands and uh, not have to, to work multiple jobs to, uh, to afford $20, $30 headbands and wristbands? Um, and the answer was, I need to find a lower cost provider and wholesaler. Um, and so... I uh, looked up a bunch of wholesalers in the area, um, drove 
60 miles to what was akin to the garment fashion district in New York City and bought um, uh, these terry cloth headbands and wristbands, a dollar, two dollars a pop, initially for myself, just so I would have the, uh, the, the headbands when I was playing whatever the sport was at the time. Um, and the styles of those headbands were so unique and different that they caught the eye of teammates and, and, other, um, uh, and other people in my circle. And eventually I started buying these whole bands and selling them retail to friends and teammates and got to a point where um, I started thinking, well, someone else could just figure out where I was buying these wholesale. And uh, I need to figure out a way to kind of differentiate these, these products and make them unique and, and, uh, and personal. And that was the key word personal. And so the idea was uh, to, start a personalized headband and wristband company where I would embroider your name, a logo, a slogan, um, you know, for a fee. Um, and, uh, you could have your own customized headband and wristband with whatever, uh, words you wanted, um, uh, within reason, of course. But, uh, that, that business ended up, um, being really a catalyst to me, uh, seeing more of the country, more of the world, um, and uh, broadening my horizons and, and also what I thought was possible because I, I ended up getting a lot of traction um, because uh, a number of teams, high schools in the area uh, would order these headbands and wristbands. I even pitched LSU um, and their, their band as well. Um, and, uh, and we had some, some folks from, from the school actually end up buying a number of, uh, uh, a number of orders and um, uh, and it took me to uh, a few different organizations that actually focused on helping uh, organize uh, entrepreneurs' business plans for them. Uh, for instance, National Foundation for Teaching Entrepreneurship, or NIFTI, uh, reached out and, and said, you know, we, we, uh, we love the business plan idea you have. We, um, we'd be excited to help take it to the next level. And so I ended up entering um, a couple business plan competitions um, ended up winning those business plan competitions. I ended up getting some mentors in uh, the uh, financial world, the operations world, ended up visiting New York City. And um, it just expanded, you know, my horizons. And it all started with that question of, um, you know, what would it take for me to be able to buy something that was uh, more affordable and that would solve a personal pain point? And, and so to me, entrepreneurship, that's the essence of it. It's, it's that curiosity. Um, and then it's the initiative uh, to um, have conviction and, and actually propose a solution or an idea um, that you're willing to put everything, um, you know, behind uh, to answer that initial question. And it's a lot easier to build a business, I found, when uh, that question is personal and it's something that uh, is meaningful. And it's something that probably also is true for others as well, because clearly I wasn't the only one who didn't want to pay $20 for a Nike headband. And, uh, you know, there was product market fit, I guess you could say for, for the idea. Um, but it's because it was a personal pain point. And, um, when I was able to actually give other people the solution to the same personal pain point, it became all the more meaningful. But also I feel like, um, you know, something like financial literacy and like, thinking about like the democratization of of financial opportunities as you were talking about at the beginning was something that you were also i've learned you know interested in at day one like when you were in college um like i think you started a financial literacy like uh club or something like yeah, yeah. from from the very beginning 
did you have a sense in terms of like what you just said, this, this problem to solve this pain point um, involved stuff around personal finance? Yeah. I mean, I, um, uh, being, you know, quote unquote entrepreneur, which is sort of how I, I began, I guess, uh, labeling myself. Um, uh, I thought the natural transition when I was in college was to focus on, um, you know, business or finance, um, because the biggest part of, uh, you know, my, my kind of constraints running my, my company were financials. Um, and so, uh, I was pretty shocked to learn that I didn't know anything about um, the basics of finance um, as as a uh, as a college student, um, and that became really clear to me when I started speaking to people who had come to college to recruit uh, undergrads um, uh, for investment banking jobs, whatever the case might be, and they would throw out words and jargon like leverage or um, uh, or underwriting or. Uh, um, you know, or, you know, balance sheet, uh, and three, three statement, uh, models. And so, um, you know, again, I, I would enter in these conversations, I'd be completely lost and, uh, literally had no idea what the people I was speaking with were saying. And again, I, I felt like couldn't just be me who was confused. There had to be other people who, um, you know, grew up working class like me, maybe didn't have, you know, family members and, and the financial services space who, uh, we're not familiar and um, with with the the, the jargon of the, in the in the industry, um, and uh, you know, kind of we're a step behind everybody else. And so, to me, it was really about leveling the playing field and figuring out how to help others uh, step into these conversations and eventually these industries um, with uh, insights and information that would allow them to be successful. It's like language, you know, if you if you don't. Uh, speak the language. I don't care how how intelligent or smart you are. Um, you're not going to be able to communicate with other people um, who who uh, who speak a different language. So um, when I was an undergraduate, I ended up starting this organization aimed at um, creating greater financial literacy and understanding um, amongst undergraduates. And, and the, the real novelty behind it was I um, recruited uh, uh, Harvard Business School professors uh, and MBA students. To actually teach curriculums and the basics, you know, it was like a, a boot camp for for finance 101. Um, and they had never taught undergraduates before um, at Harvard College, and so uh, that was um, you know something that I was really proud of because uh, while it looked like a success, and I was in you know media and all all, all the like, which was nice, um, people didn't see all the work that went into the pitch. You know, I had to make to the professors to teach these curriculums. People didn't see the work that went into trying to teach myself um, some of these concepts and, uh, you know, putting these curriculums together, putting them online. Um, and, uh, and, you know, that's oftentimes uh, the reality of being an entrepreneur. Um, people don't sort of see what, what happens behind the scenes, um, the grittiness of it, the fact that you're way more likely to get a no than a yes in almost every situation and circumstance. And, that not, and this was no different in the case of starting this organization up. But ultimately, uh, it ended up being the largest pre-professional organization still exists. There have been thousands of, of students that have gone through a uh, very tough financial group. And I like to think of um, the alum as hopefully uh, better off as a result because they were able to uh, learn some of these financial services concepts that they don't teach you at you know, liberal arts schools, um, uh, but were, were really important, especially for those who didn't 
who didn't grow up in, from coming from these worlds or coming from wealth or money. Um, so that was a nice example of entrepreneurship um, in action, solving a personal pain point, but a pain point for a lot more people and, and hopefully leveling playing field as well. Well, directly to that end, and I know that we're, I think we're skipping ahead to, to post-college, um, but um, you also, like, um, I think you were getting into commercial real estate and things like that in the South and um, trying to invest in real estate and things like that, and you had a hard time um, securing loans, uh, and and so, again, personal pain point of, like, that sort of direct access to the levers of the ability to um you know make money and 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 be financially uh, you know bring yourself up to the next level like that's an that's another thing that you personally experienced and and maybe informed um cadre absolutely there's a saying that you know to make money you need money and it's it's so true. Uh, you need capital. You need access to capital. Um, you don't always need access to as much as you may think you need from what you read about with you know all these fundraisers and um, uh, you know and you know, I've been uh, for sure uh, in certain cases swept up in you know the the fundraising mania in terms of always wanting to to raise more and thinking it's important you know to to uh to kind of constantly be being uh you know on the on the fundraise trail but um i i do uh i do think that uh you know output is never greater than input and um you know i i realized pretty early on that i was gonna have to work incredibly hard to uh, capitalize or finance any venture i pursued um because you know in the case of my first real estate business i was a college student um, I didn't have any collateral. My parents didn't, um, you know, own any real estate. I had no liquidity. You know, I was, I was, I guess people would consider more of a, a risky borrower. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, I had to talk to more than a dozen banks and she mentioned almost everyone said no. The one bank that ended up saying yes was a black owned bank called Citizens Trust where, um, uh, you know, I know the, the CEO and the chairman today uh, still very, very well. And they saw, I guess, some of themselves in me and uh, and gave me a shot. You know, they ended up uh, issuing me a loan so I could buy a, a portfolio of real estate. Um, uh, and the backstory to that was, uh, you know, as a, as a college student, uh, I learned enough about real estate through the financial uh, organization I'd started up, Veritas Financial Group, to know that it was a space you can make, you know, a good amount of money. And, um, uh, and I was visiting one of my roommates who's from Atlanta, during a break and noticed there were all these foreclosed homes in his neighborhood. And uh, we both decided that this would be an amazing opportunity to start raising money from our classmates who had a lot more liquidity than us and trying to buy some of these homes uh, with the intent of renting them out to other people in the community. And so, um, you know, we would hopefully buy well, um, buy at what were then pretty distressed prices, rent out to people, maintain the social fabric and, you know, give people the opportunity to buy the homes back and, again, do well, do good. And by and large, we were able to actually accomplish that, um, you know, buying dozens of homes and uh, units throughout the uh, the Southeast. Uh, but the big acquisition that we needed to make uh, to take that next step was buying uh, an apartment community, multifamily, if you will. And, uh, and that's really what required a commercial real estate loan. Everything we were buying to that point was sort of 
cash unlevered. Um, and uh, when you're trying to get capital on the debt side, you you need uh, the banks to believe in the the, uh, the credit of the uh, the borrower. And um, I was different. I was unconventional in a lot of ways. Um, you know, I was used to always you know being being unique, um, whether that was just socioeconomically, ethically, um, just how I looked at the world even. Um, and so I knew I would have a challenging time, um, getting someone to say, okay, this is a, a very you know, short shot way uh, for us to, uh, to earn the interest that we're going to charge and get our money paid back. Um, but I never expected it would be as difficult as it was. Um, but I think what it highlighted is, uh, you know, if you can crack through some of these barriers and, and you just stay persistent, all you need is one person, one investor, you know, one uh, partner to believe in you. And um, that can make all the difference. And so in this case, I had one bank end up lending me the money I needed uh, to buy this apartment community in Atlanta. We ended up buying it, uh, selling it for a pretty sizable profit a couple of years later. And that became the basis um, uh, for uh, um, the track record I would use when I was uh, going out to start Cadre, um, which I wanted to to, uh, to do at a different scale. Well, right. Uh, you're talking about people believing in you, which is, of course, key. But then there's also the belief in yourself. So I am, again, skipping ahead in, in your career a little bit. Um, <laughs> you're, you're, on, you're on the Wall Street track. Um, mm-hmm. you're, you're working for, for banks, big names, etc. And at age 26, I think it is, um, you decide to start Cadre. Like, you could have stayed on a track, right? Yes. So... What is it that made you, and I, I foregrounded this by saying believe in yourself, but like that's a, that's a risk as opposed to a track where it's on rails, and I'm going to jump off the rails and go over here and build my own track. Um, what, what was it that made you want to do that? Uh, yeah, I, I remember vi- uh, very clearly, vividly, um, I just turned 26, uh, and um, you know, I was making more money in capital than I ever thought possible, uh, really through two, two means. One was I was working at Blackstone um, in real estate, private equity. And two, I had, you know, my, my kind of side hustle, if you will, my real estate portfolio that my, my, uh, my roommate and one of my best friends from college was running day to day. And, you know, we were doing really well on both fronts. And um, you're right. I, I, I believe that I could have in a very uh, sure shot, way, uh, been financially independent, made a good amount of money, just staying on that conventional path and trajectory of working at a big financial institution. And, um, uh, but I'm an entrepreneur. There's a reason why I had that side hustle. There's a reason why I wasn't sleeping late, uh, sleeping much rather. So I could focus on growing the business while also, you know, uh, making sure I, I uh, thrived in my day job. Um, and, uh, at times I felt like an entrepreneur sort of trapped within, an institution. And I think that was because uh, to succeed at a lot of large financial institutions or companies, period, you, you kind of have to be conventional, right? You're not really incentivized to, to do things differently or to see the world in different ways or to take risks or to invest in initiatives that um, may have asymmetrical or, or a lot of downside, uh, but also a lot of upside. And um, at least in my life, uh, I, I've always been able to um, succeed when I did things differently and, and when I didn't follow the pack. And, um, you know, I think the same was true uh, in the case of starting Cadre when, um, you know, it was a huge risk and, you know, 
5% plus of businesses, startups fail um, within, a, within a few years. And so, um, you know, I recognized that I knew that was a risk, but I also knew that if I wanted to do something transformational, that was actually deeply personal to me, which is democratize access to real estate investing. So more people could have better futures. I was going to have to break out and there's never a good time to do so. Um, you know, the longer you stay at these firms, the, the tighter the golden handcuffs can become, um, the easier it is to sort of settle into, you know, the, the nine to five. Um, but you know, I had aspirations that time and still do of, of, uh, hopefully reinventing and transforming the very industry I was working in. And I knew I couldn't do that within the confines of Blackstone. Um, and so, uh, it was that, unconventional orientation and willingness to to bet on myself um given some of the other initiatives i had started some that succeeded some that failed many more failed for what it's worth than succeeded um but i also knew i couldn't live with myself if i didn't break out and uh you know in this case build uh, what was akin to a blackstone for the masses um outside the, the confines of uh of my office when you go through airport security, there's one line where the TSA agent checks your ID and another line where a machine scans your bag. The same thing happens in enterprise security, but instead of passengers and luggage, it's end users and their devices. These days, most companies are pretty good at the first part of the equation where they check user identity, but user devices can roll right through authentication without getting inspected at all. In fact, 47% of companies allow unmanaged, untrusted devices to access their data. That means an employee can log in from a laptop that's had its firewall turned off and hasn't been updated in six months or worse. That laptop might belong to a bad actor using employee credentials. Collide finally solves the device trust problem. Collide ensures that no device can log into your Okta-protected apps unless it passes your security checks. Plus, you can use Collide on devices without MDM, like your Linux fleet, contractor devices, and every BYOD phone and laptop in your company. Visit collide.com slash ride to watch a demo and see how it works. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash ride. We're being sponsored today by a company on a product that longtime listeners know I have used for years and cannot literally cannot live or at least work without it. One Password. One Password combines industry-leading security with award-winning design to bring private, secure, and user-friendly password management to everyone. Companies lose hours every day just from employees forgetting and resetting passwords. A single data breach costs millions of dollars. One Password secures every sign-in to save you time and money, any device, any time. One Password lets you securely switch between iPhone. Android, Mac, and PC with convenient features like autofill for quick sign-ins. All you have to remember is the one strong account password that protects everything else. Your logins, your credit cards, secure notes, or the office Wi-Fi password. 1Password generates as many strong, unique passwords as you need and securely stores them in an encrypted vault that only you have access to. I started using 1Password, what, a decade ago? Join me and over 100,000 businesses on board the 1Password bandwagon. Because right now, my listeners get a free two-week trial at onepassword.com slash ride. That's two free weeks at the number one, the word password, all one word, dot com slash ride. Onepassword.com slash ride. The, you've said this many times, so, uh, you know, democratization, access to real estate as, you know, a wealth creation engine, um, when I ask people, like, um, is the vision that or the mission that you started with the same today? 
I don't know that either answer is better than the other. Some people are like, the mission today is the same that it was 10 years ago. Other people say the mission today has changed and evolved because what I had to learn uh, changed and evolved, right? So which side do you feel like you fall on? And it could be both. I mean, I'm sure there are things that you have tweaked in terms of what the vision for Cadre is, but um, where do you fall on that? Like, are you still diamond focused on the original vision or um, ha have things pivoted in your mind to some degree? Yes, I, I would say that um, uh, the original vision for the business uh, is is different um, uh, from you know, the, the vision today. Um, and it's different. And, uh, I probably was not nearly as ambitious, uh, and, and what I was looking to accomplish early on as what I'm looking to accomplish today. And there's some good reasons for that. Um, and I think in any entrepreneurial journey, there, there's, there's going to be circumstances that change the world changes, regulatory dynamics change. Um, and that can actually directly impact whether or not the vision you have is feasible or not. In my case, what I was looking to do early on was broaden access um, to real estate investments, and um, you know, uh, broadening access meant you know bringing uh, more individuals um, into real estate investments. But by and large, uh, we're going to be accredited investors because uh, while the 2012 Jobs Act had come out, uh, there was still a lot of constraints around um, you know what you actually could could market from a private placement perspective and it was really tough and frankly not economically feasible to, to go to the masses. And so, um, you know, our, our vision and mission has evolved now where we want to make it um, as easy for any individual, irrespective of your, your accreditation standard to invest in real estate as it is to buy a, a consumer product on you name your favorite, uh, favorite website, uh, or e-commerce website. Um, and that's a function of a lot of regulation, um, uh, changing to make it easier for the the average individual to invest in um, you know private alternatives like real estate. Um, it's also a function of us uh, building a pretty strong brand and track record where you know we've had institutions invest on our platform. Um, you know, largest endowment in the world's an investor and a client. And so there's an element now of okay, we built the trust, we've established. Um, that you know we've been able to actually offer direct access to real estate. Some of the most discerning investors in the world. Now we can actually, from a position of strength, bring it to people who have never been able to invest in apartment buildings, you know, fractional stakes of apartment buildings before, or, or fractional stakes of industrial warehouse centers at low minimums. Um, so I would say that the, the vision has actually expanded since I started because of the regulatory environment becoming a bit more. Uh, uh, accommodating for for people uh who are looking to um bring access you know to uh to new investment offerings uh the fact that you know we've been able to actually achieve more success on the higher end of the market um in terms of net worth for investors and um uh and because of the the brand equity we've been able to create and build as well um, but i think anyone who tells you that the vision or the mission is identical um day one and, and seven or eight years later or will be identical seven or eight years later is is um is implying that they also know what the world will hold um and uh you know i think if anything we've learned the last couple of years is is that uh 
uh, no one actually knows what the future will will will, uh, will truly hold. Oh boy, did you just seg into my next question, which is, um, you know, a lot of our portfolio companies, or most of them, um, you know, are seed, even maybe Series A level. So, I haven't really asked people about the challenges of COVID times, but I, I don't even want to do that because this is more a question about if you're an entrepreneur and there's like. Like COVID times was like a literal act of God force majeure sort of thing. (laughs) But you're also operating in an environment where we're recording this on Tuesday, March 7th. Um, uh, The Fed chair um, talked about interest rates today, which has an impact on your business. As an entrepreneur where you're dealing with acts of God, huge regulatory geopolitical things, what is that like versus like what you just said at like, you know, buying a product on your favorite website or creating an app or something like that? Is it, it's obviously harder, but is there some sort of, is there some sort of like um, strategy or like Zen way that you've thought or you've come up with to deal with? Our business could change tomorrow for reasons that are completely outside of our control. There is no Zen way um, mm. that I've come up uh, that I've been uh, able to uh, uh, to you know ma- manage the stress of of building a business um, where it's you're literally pushing a boulder up a hill and you have no idea what the climate's like at the top of that hill or what's coming down or what's on the other side of that boulder, let alone what's at the the top of the hill. Um, and you know you've got a lot of people pulling you down in the process as well. And so it's it's um, uh, it is really really challenging. My my best advice is uh, staying present and you know not getting you know too far ahead of yourself, not looking to the next meeting, the next hour, the next day, the next month, the next year, um, and uh, giving it your all in the exact moment that you're in, and 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 then you know if your all is in, is not enough, and there have been plenty of times where I've you know um, worked relentlessly and it wasn't enough. Um, not getting too low on yourself in, in the same, by the same means, if you get a big win or a big break or, um, you know, the, uh, the pandemic accelerates your business, not getting too high on yourself either. Um, and so that's kind of been the philosophy I've tried to take to every day is, um, you know, live in the moment, be present, um, never get too high, never get too low. Uh, and, uh, and then just remind myself that the most important attribute to being, um, uh, a successful entrepreneur, in my opinion, is the ability to absorb uh, uncertainty and ambiguity um, because uh, building something that hasn't been created or something that uh, aspires to reinvent an industry or reinvent a way of doing a process is just by its very nature going to be filled with uncertainty because there's not a path you know that you can you can travel that's been uh, already uh, walked for you. Um, and so uh, you have to be able to deal with the fact that every single day there's going to be something out of your control and recognize that um, all you can do is focus your efforts on what you can control um, and know that uh, the unexpected will absolutely happen. That's one thing you can bank on. It's just hard to know what that can always be. And, and that just has to be something that, you know, you, you, you bake and you embed in your, your mentality, getting up every single day, uh, but staying present has been the best way and staying in the moment and not even looking ahead to my calendar, um, because that can become overwhelming and, and uh, anxiety-inducing, um, is, uh, is how I've uh, managed 
really to, to uh, lead the, the team that we've built and created and also to uh, stay somewhat sane in the process. Well, uh, let's end, let's end with this. Um, because one of the reasons that I was excited to invest now is I feel like, um, your original vision, you're at an acceleration or an inflection point where it, it it's on the cusp of, um, coming to fruition even more. Um, so people that are interested in cadre, cadre.com, uh, but, uh, tell me the state of the product right now, like if I was interested in this and investing in real estate to the degree that I'm not asking you to reveal anything coming down the pipeline or whatever, but um, like, what are you excited about for Cadre at this moment? Yeah, I'm excited for um, a number of new investment products we'll be launching um, that will allow us to reach um, a much wider range of individuals and institutions um, uh, that will allow us to reach uh, individuals around the world. Um, you know, so we're launching at least two new products, um, that, uh, people will be able to invest in, you know, where you'll get your own sort of think of it as like a digital real estate ETF in some ways, diversified portfolio of buildings, um, in high growth sectors, uh, around the country, multifamily, industrial, leisure hotel, um, uh, that will be more accessible and inclusive, uh, irrespective of things like accreditation standards or, or where you live. Um, and the reason I'm excited about that at this moment in time is because I do think we are um, in one of the most uh, exciting and uh, um, potentially lucrative uh, investment windows of uh, our lifetimes. Uh, and, and, you know, people talk about, you know, rates increasing. And yes, there absolutely is stress and dislocation and concern on what that means for existing portfolios. That also means there's opportunities to uh, buy at prices that you'd never be able to buy otherwise. Um, you know, as as uh, uh, owners of real estate need liquidity um, but can't get it because of you know all the reasons we discussed with interest rates and macro uncertainty, um, that presents an opportunity for platforms like ours to give people the ability to to buy stakes in buildings they otherwise would not be able to buy um, to provide like rescue capital, if you will. And so, for that reason, I'm incredibly I encouraged um, because I think that in this cycle, we actually will be a platform that will allow the everyday individual to be able to benefit um, from some of the uh, uh, some of the growth and value that will happen in these these buildings over the next year to two years in a way that they couldn't during 08, 09, you know, participate in the recovery, participate in the upside. We saw that a lot of institutions got bailed out in 2008 and 2009, and a lot of institutions that got bailed out are uh, were able to thrive as a result of that. But the everyday individual, you know, they lost their home or they were, uh, they lost their job or, you know, they had no way to invest in uh, any of these, these uh, assets that were um, incredibly uh, discounted and cheap. Well, this go around, we want to change that. And um, I'm excited about the products that we'll be launching. You can go to cadre.com to, to get a preview of a couple of them. Um, and, uh, and then people can sign up and, learn more about real estate, but also learn more about investing on our platform and uh, hopefully leveling the investing playing field. That's really what it's about. Um, and uh, it's about letting more people have better financial futures that are stable. Um, and then also creating long-term wealth. Uh, that's the best, <laughs> that's the best ending I could think of. So Ryan, thank you so much for coming on, sharing the cadre story. Um, and uh, like I said, I'm excited, hashtag proud investor, all that good stuff. 
Thank you, Brian. I really appreciate it. Grateful for the opportunity. Grateful to have you in our cadre. And um, I appreciate the opportunity to share a little bit of my story. 